turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're kind of winding this book down. 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we uh, get started here, I'd just like to ask this question. What are you known for? What are you known for? You know, when we ask that question, we start immediately thinking like, well, what do I do? What are my activities I've been involved in? Accomplishments, relationships, career. We start thinking about those sort of things like, what are you known for? And, you know, there's, there's people in our church that you should know. So, for instance, like, there's a guy, Calvin Hester. In fact, I think we got a slide here. You're looking at a photograph you're not going to see very often. This is actually taken in World War II. That is a Mach 4 German tank. That guy sitting on the tank with his gun, that's Calvin Hester, guy in our church. He was on the Normandy invasion, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Shortly after he took with his buddy that German tank, he was captured by the Germans and experienced the terror and the horrors of being a prisoner of war. You know, and actually this morning, we actually have Calvin Hester right here, sitting right here. He's able to be with us this morning. telling you thank you i'll tell you what these are important events but do you know the man behind the mission let me introduce you to another guy this guy you probably haven't seen unless you're one of those high school guys that goes lifting oh that's my gang at memorial day a few years ago back in the day with calvin here's another guy if you're a high school kid and you work out with me early in the morning or some of you others like richard you probably recognize this guy this guy's name is melvin you know how old melvin is He's 77. The guy's a total machine, okay? I know the Cowboys are short on linemen. I think they ought to call him, you know? I think he's got availability, but I was talking with him. He's, he's a, a regimented guy. He, like, he gets up, like, really early, and uh, he gets up way before the newspaper shows up. So he gets up, he reads his Bible, he reads through the Daily Bread, he prays, and then the newspaper, I guess he greets the guy that dropped the newspaper off, picks that up, and, and he says, you know, every morning I, I pick it up, I, I read the obituaries to see if I'm in it, Okay? You know, and and someday we will be. And what are they going to say? It's like Calvin told me one time I was talking with him at his retirement home. He said, you know, one day we're going to wake up and find that we're dead. Okay, and that's going to happen. What are they going to say? Who are you? What are you known for? It comes out like in conversations like if you move into a neighborhood or you're the new folk guy or gal on the job and, and someone knows you, they're going to ask, well, what are you known for? What, what do you really like? And so you have these conversations. If you are a parent, let me tell you this. Your kids, your kids one day are going to tell their life story and you're going to be a part of it. What are they going to say about you, about mom or dad or the, your grandparents. What, what are they going to say about you? Who are you really like? And, and students, let me just tell you. In a few days, many of you are going to be hitting your college campuses. You're going to make entrance into your high school or your junior high. And you're going to find out who you really are at this point in life. And really, you only need to know the answer to about three questions to really get at the heart 
of an individual. In fact, the answer to these three questions really shape who we are. And when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul is closing this book, and what he's doing is he is drawing focus to the defining features of Timothy's life. And friends, I, I want you to know this well, because the answer to these three questions really are going to define who you are. And the very first one is found in verse 11, and that is what we flee from. What do you flee from? And Paul says, but flee from these things, you man of God. Now, what is he talking about? When he's talking about fleeing from these things, we always have to look at context, and context tells us you want to flee the love of money. Look at verse 9. But those who want to get rich, anybody want to get rich? This would be a bad time to raise your hand. Okay, I, did, I warned you. Oh, man. Okay, I hope some of you didn't see that. Okay, those of you who want to get rich, you will fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. If you love money, it's going to distort your soul and it actually will lead you to ruin even though it promises to be your salvation. In fact, he says in the very next verse, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, evil, not all evil, but all sorts of evil when you love it. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let me tell you why money is so dangerous. Wealth can be so dangerous because money is a very alluring alternative messiah. And our society propagates that money can pretty much rescue you from anything, and it is a lie. You can never find life. You can never find salvation. You can never find relationship with God. And you can never find the things that are most important in money. Now listen, it's not wrong for you to have money. It is wrong when money has you. And that's why Paul is saying you need to flee from the love of money. I mean, there's, it's really interesting. There's some other things in the Bible. I actually kind of studied this out. What, what are we supposed to flee from? What specifically does God's word say to flee from? There's another one he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he says, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is when you take any person, place, or thing, and you put it in the place of God. And it could be someone you're married to or you'd like to be. It could be your kids. It could be some other person. It could be a thing. It could be a stone. It could be a rock. It could be jewelry. It could be your IRA. But anything that takes the place of God is an idol. And God says, flee from it. Literally, run with everything you got. The Greek word is it's fuego. It's where we actually get the word fugitive from. A fugitive is someone that's on the run, man. They are moving it. They are booking it because they don't want to get caught. That's the word that's used here. You want to flee from those things. Let me give you another one that the Bible says to flee from. Flee immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Flee immorality. You want to be like Joseph. Remember Joseph and you got Potiphar's wife? And I'm sure she was a very attractive lady. She had a lot of power. She had a lot of position. And Joseph is probably a real good-looking guy. And Joseph kept turning down all her solicitations to do what is absolutely wrong. And the reason he was able to do that is he had his convictions in place 
before he faced the temptation. I'll assure you that in his flesh, Joseph probably wanted to be wanted. But he made this statement in Genesis 39, verse 9. He actually told her this. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, there were certain things that he was going to flee from in his life. And it's very sobering. Every time I have involved myself and dealt with someone who has been involved in adultery, most of them have made this statement. I can't believe that this happened to me. You want to flee from this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Another thing the Bible says to flee from, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee from youthful lusts. You have got to make an effort. You have got to say no. We've got all of these guys that are putting themselves in front of these screens and they're watching one immoral scene after another and it is having a catastrophic effect on their souls. And it is everywhere. It's hard to even start turning on an, a computer and start taking, doing a little bit of internet research without some of these images starting to come up. And then we've got these things like phones. And we've got a, a generation of young people that is being absolutely torn up and corrupted by all the garbage that is coming on there, whether it be through YouTube or countless other little deals like Snapchat where, or some sort of Instagram picture where maybe it actually even disappears shortly after it's seen. And then... You know, for years, like we have women that are buying all these Harlequin romance novels. You see all that trash when you're trying to buy your groceries and you got all these, these novels and you got these pictures that are meant to capture your attention. Do you know why there's millions and millions of those kind of books out there? Any? Come on, we got at least one marketer in here. Do you know why? Because people buy them. They buy them by the truckloads. And it is feeding one disaster after another. And every time you engage something, something that God says to flee from, your heart turns another shade cooler toward God. That's why he says, flee. You've got to make some effort. You've got to fight. And so he says, flee from these things. When you've got folks that are actually doing this, you know, let me just tell you what's going on. They are living for the feelings of the moment. And they have set aside whatever convictions they think they have. They either don't have the convictions, meaning, yeah, in the right circles, or mom and dad, they're going to say certain things, but in actuality, they have a whole different realm of convictions they operate by, and that's why they engage in all this material, and that's why they get involved in these kind of relationships, or they're not turning to the one who will give them strength, who is the Lord of their life. Something is going on. Let me give you a verse. You might want to write this down. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says this. Peter is saying basically the same thing. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You want to destroy your life? You engage the things that God says flee from. And that's why he's saying, but flee from these things, you man of God. Uh, right after we uh, moved here uh, from Oregon, Portland, Oregon, to Waco, number one city in the nation to live in, right? That's why I came. We were invited some, by some friends to go to the, the zoo, the Cameron Park Zoo. And I'll tell you what, it is an awesome zoo. 
And you can go look around. I mean, it's usually zoos are like concrete jungles, and I feel very sorry for all the animals. Like, oh, this is a terrible thing, you know? And then, but actually, the Waco, the Cameron Park Zoo, is, it's awesome. And they have this, like, snake den. This is kind of an interesting place. It's all real dark there. And, and every time I've gone in the snake den, I've noticed that many of the snakes don't move. I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure if they're real. That's why sometimes I'm looking to see if there's, like, fishing line, like, hooked to their tail. So if the zookeeper sees, like, hey, man, we've got to move the snake a little bit or something like that. So, but we were in this, this we were there for its friends, and we're in this, like, snake den deal. And my friend, I don't know how he did this, but he got this snake to, like, really get charged. He kept tantalizing him, and he was hitting the glass, you know, and, and the snake was, got curled up and, coiled up, and then the snake actually, like, rose like he was going to strike him. Like, wow, it was really awesome, you know? And he was, like, tantalizing him and running back and forth. And it was awesome. It was a lot of fun until the uh, zookeeper lady came running out behind there and said, stop it, you know? I'm like, okay, whoa, and you're like, okay. And that snake was just about ready to strike. But, of course, if it would strike, you know, it would hit that plexiglass and, you know, you're safe. That's the beauty of zoos. Let me tell you, you don't live in the zoo. There's no plexiglass between the snake and you. Now, you play around with sin. You flirt with temptation. You don't run because you don't take it seriously enough. You get bit. Yes, Jesus eternally saves. But there are present consequences that you might have to wrestle with for a long time because you didn't take God seriously and flee when he said to flee. That's why he's making this such a case. You've got to flee from these things. Don't put your stock in your feelings. And notice what he said. You see this in verse 11? This is so important. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God. A strong deterrent to doing evil is knowing who you are in Christ, that you are a man of God. And Paul, man, the consummate disciple, the real mentor, he's saying, Timothy, remember, you come from a long line of spokesmen for God's word. In fact, many, I think about 70 times in the Old Testament, there are different ones like Elijah and Elisha that are referred to as men of God. You are a man of God. You have an identity in Christ. You want to flee from these things. And I just want you to know that what you flee from is going to be a defining feature in your life. Are you on the run from anything? Anybody on the run? Really? We're all just getting cozy with every whatever's getting thrown at us at the TV, in our culture, in the magazines. No. There are certain things that we need to flee from. It'll be a defining feature in your life. Let me give you a second defining feature of your life. What you'll be defined by. Not only what you flee from, but what you aspire to. Notice in the very same verse, he says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. So he had talked about running away. Pursue has the idea of like, this is the word they'd use for like a hunt. Or if you were chasing after some sort of object, like an animal, or if a, if a person was being hunted down, this is the word they would use. And he says, there are certain things that you want to aspire to. And what Paul is going to do is he is going to give you a picture of what Christian maturity looks like. What does maturity in Christ look like? What do you aspire to be like? And so he says, you pursue, first thing he says is righteousness. Now, let's make it real clear here. The righteousness that he's talking about here, this isn't the righteousness that is imputed to us when we believe in Christ. 
If you trust in Jesus Christ, you know that you are declared absolutely right before God. It is a judicial standing for eternity. You are always secure and right with God. The righteousness that he's talking about here is right behavior. It is holiness of lifestyle that you do the right things. And so what he's saying is, Timothy, flee, but pursue Christian maturity. Pursue a lifestyle in Christ that does what is right. And then a second uh, characteristic that he gives there is not only you want to pursue righteousness, but godliness. Righteousness could be seen as like the external manifestations, but godliness is actually the internal motive. And this is really important. Jesus made it real clear, you running around doing right things apart from the right heart. He had huge problems with that. In fact, in one case where these Pharisees and scribes are running around doing, quote unquote, the right things, but they had terrible hearts. He said, you know what you guys are like? You're like these whitewashed tombs. Outside, you look all real nice and shiny, but inside, you are full of dead men's bones. I want reality. I want my presence in your life. What you do needs to be driven by who I am. And so it's a heart issue. That's what godliness is. It is looking to glorify God by having the attitude and the motive of seeing him exalted. And then another characteristic, he says, have a vision for being a man or a woman of faith where you've got confidence in God's power and his plan, his, his presence, his purpose. You're, yeah, you're fleeing from these things, but if you're just fleeing from things, you're just being known for what you're against. Paul is writing saying, you have, a, have a vision for maturity. Be a man or woman that walks with God. A person of faith that you take God at his word, that you believe that he's going to see you through that you trust in him, you rely on him, you pray to him, you talk to him. You're a person of faith. This is what you need to pursue. And another characteristic, he says, pursue faith. Another one is love. The idea that you actually will put another's interests before your own. That you have a, an affection and a heart for God, for people, a love for people that don't even know Christ yet but they might if you're a person of love. You want to pursue these things because I'm going to tell you the characteristics that you aspire to in your life, they're going to define you. I'll give you another one here. Look at right here in the text. Faith, love. Another one he says is perseverance. Aspire to be a person who literally remains under. That's what that word could be translated. Literally to remain under. You have the ability to stay with it. You are, you are in a position where you are continually moving forward. This isn't a fatalistic resignation like, well, I just am resigned that whatever happens is happens. And you're just going through life and you're just getting obliterated. That is not what perseverance is. Perseverance is staying faithful and even when it is difficult, you are still moving forward. There are times where your body is not going to want to do what is right, but you persevere. You're going to be tired. You're going to be discouraged. But because you persevere through the presence of Jesus, it starts defining your life. You're a person of perseverance. I'll I'll just tell you, the older I get, the more I aspire to be like the folks in our church that have been walking with Christ for like 40, 50, 60 years 
70 years. Do you know why? They demonstrate the maturity of perseverance. They have gone through the hard times. Every life has drama. I've got a lot of drama in my life. You've got drama. You've got problems. You've got issues. You've got troubles. But you persevere. You keep looking to Jesus. You stay on, keep on staying on. And this is something that, that we don't necessarily value even in our culture. I was doing some reading about like, like these differences in math scores. You know that, uh, like, for instance, America isn't, our students aren't doing great in math. And the Japanese, on the other hand, they are always outscoring the American students. And recently there's been some research done to try to figure out why is that the case. The kind of the thought has always been that there's just, well, Japanese children just have a natural proclivity to math, you know, and they're just, just always better, right? Well, they did some research, and this is what they did. In this one particular study, this was done in 2010, they gathered up all these American first-grade students and all these Japanese first-grade students, and they gave them like a really difficult puzzle, one that they most likely would never be able to solve. And they didn't really care if uh, they could solve the puzzle or not. What they wanted to find out is how long they'd stay at it before they gave up. And the American children, man, they plowed in there and they gave it a really good shot. And we should be proud of our first skaters. They, they stayed with the puzzle for 9 minutes and 47 seconds. And after that, man, it was recess time. They wanted out of there and no more of that puzzle. Can't get it figured out. May as well stop something if you can't get it figured out, right? The Japanese kids, on the other hand, they, they lasted longer. They lasted 13.93 minutes, almost 14 minutes on average. That's a difference of 47%. And their research is telling them, you know, it really has not anything to do with intelligence or a proclivity to math, but it has the, the idea that there are just some students that stay at the work longer. It has less to do with intelligence quotient and more to do with the persistence quotient. And this is true in every realm of life. Academics, athletics, your job, but especially in Christian maturity. You have to stay at it. You have to keep moving forward. You can't get sidetracked so easily. Some of you might need to realize that you have to take your spiritual life a little more seriously than an occasional appearance on Sunday morning. That will not bring you to the fullness of maturity in Christ. I'm sorry. I know you can microwave your food, but you can't microwave your spirituality. It doesn't work. And that's why he's saying, have a vision and a picture of maturity in Christ. It looks like perseverance. And then a final trait, the sixth one he gives there, is gentleness. You see that? And gentleness. The idea that you are controlled and confident and firm and that you have, you're like power under control. And this is what maturity in Christ looks like. This is the vision of our church. Just like a tree is growing deep and you are reaching out, the trunk of the tree is like your character. And it's faith and righteousness and gentleness. This has a way of coming out of your life. And it's showing up in your relationships and is showing up in your ministry slash your work. And this is God's vision for his people, that we grow up and that we mature in Christ. There's just two questions that I just keep asking myself, over, asking the Lord actually, over and over. And it's this, Lord, what does maturity in Christ look like in this situation or relationship? Try it. This week, try that question. Lord, what does maturity look like in this situation, in this relationship? And the second then is, Lord, would you give me the grace and the strength and the desire to do this? 
What does it look like, Lord? Show me. Bring to mind your word. And God, would you allow it to happen? Would you give me the strength, the grace, the desire to do that? And you want to have a grid in your life of the things that you are truly pursuing because what you aspire to is going to define you. There is one verse in the Bible that you ought to take a good look at, and it's Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And it tells you, listen, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is of lovely, of good repute, you see those sort of things? If there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And if it doesn't fit Philippians 4 or 8, you might want to abandon it. You might want to stop. So take and things that you're watching. The next set of emails and texts and Instagram posts that you do, could you sign it for God's glory? Could you? If you can't, don't send it. Don't watch it. Let me give you just a really simple piece of advice that, is, that has been so very helpful for me. When in doubt, don't. If you doubt, like, eh, I'm not sure if I should really do this or be in this situation, don't do it. Stay clear. Why? Because you are made for God, and he wants you to experience his fullness. And so what we aspire to what you really have a picture of and you're pursuing in a relationship with Christ, this is going to define you for the rest of your life. Let me give you then just the third quality that's going to define you, and that is, who are you trusting in? And notice what he says, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. You can't read this passage without getting the idea that this is a struggle. You are fighting it's, you're fleeing, you're pursuing, and you're fighting. And he says, fight. Literally, the word is agonize. And it's used of an athletic or a military struggle. And he says, fight the good fight of faith. And I'll tell you, I'm really glad that he wrote that. Fight. Because I find that at times, walking with God in this world, in my circumstances, in my flesh, is difficult. Sometimes, I find my flesh wants to do the absolute opposite. Sometimes I'm like, where did that come from? Some thought just rolls through your head. I mean, it's hard. You know, like, maybe you're much better. I'm sure you're much more sanctified than myself. But when someone starts, you know, messing with you and and your pride gets hurt and you feel like you've been run over with a Mack truck, right, you kind of feel like, that's it, man. I'm going to take revenge, right? I'm going to set the record straight. Anybody else feel like that? No, just me, right? Okay, I'm feeling really alone up here. Okay. All right. Well, I'll just tell you, it is a struggle. But I've got to keep fighting. Because I know that who I am trusting in is going to make all the difference. And he says, you want to know how to fight? Verse 12, fight the good fight and take hold of the eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life. He's speaking of not that he's not telling Timothy, you know, your life as a pastor would be a lot better if you actually had eternal life. He's not saying that in case you're like, whoa, that's a, no. He's saying you've got life in Christ. You need to take full advantage of this relationship. This is our mission, actually, at fellowship to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. Once you have turned from your sin and recognize that Christ is the payment for your sin and you're trusting in him. You have divine resources through his relationship 
for every aspect of your life. And God wants you to experience the richness of him hour by hour. That's what he's saying. He's telling Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God called you. And he furthermore, not only did God actually draw you through his sovereignty to himself, he called you. But he says, and you, Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You spoke up to to give a testimony, to bear witnesses, to, to give testimony of the truth. Timothy probably happened at his baptism or perhaps when he was actually set apart to be a pastor. You spoke of the living God and the power of Jesus You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You're trusting in Christ. Now that life is hard, now that it is difficult, you're facing challenges. You've got people against you. You find out that your flesh is unstable. Remember the good confession that you made. And furthermore, he says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's saying, I want you to also remember Jesus. Remember when Pilate asked him, are you really the king of the Jews? And he said, it is as you say, you got it right. Remember how Jesus took a beating? Remember how Jesus went to the cross? Because he kept entrusting himself to him who will do what is right. That is what Paul is telling Timothy. I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, right before he went to the cross, he says, Timothy, verse 14, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who is able to give you life. You keep the commandment, speaking of the word and the faith that accompanies it. Keep it without stain or reproach. You see that? How many of you, when I say the word name Tyson Gay, sound familiar? Been in the news a lot? I got Lance Armstrong. You guys heard of him? Yeah. How about uh, Alex Rodriguez? Anybody heard of him? Yeah. What do these guys have in common? They have tainted their sport because they have made a disgrace of their person. They they have put a stain on their reputation by what they have done. Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to remember your confession. I want you to remember Jesus and his confession and that you keep the commandment. You see that verse 14? You keep this word without stain or reproach. There is nothing that is going to be brought against you until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until you either see him, because you, make, you pass from this life to his presence, or he returns, I want you to stay faithful. And the only way that you and I are going to be able to live like this is if we continue to lay hold of the eternal life, verse 12, that we have in Christ Jesus. And notice what he says. Your vision of God is everything about you. And he says, who alone, verse, six, verse 15, he says, which will, he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a title that's used of Christ, like in the book of Revelation, but it's also referring here to God specifically because he says in verse 16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inappro- unapproachable light, 
whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You are in relationship with him. And who you are trusting in is going to define your life. Let me tell you that your portrait of God, how you really see God, is going to shape your relationship with him. If you don't see God as immortal, invisible, all-powerful, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, if you don't, then it shouldn't surprise you the direction of your life and, the, and, the, and just the kind of lack of stability and lack of maturity because, the, frankly, your problem is that your picture of God is wrong. But when you see God for who he is, and by the way, your, your view of God is the greatest possession that you have. When you see him as great, as the one who's the Savior, as the Lord of all, as the King of kings, do you know what? Let me tell you what happens. Your life is fundamentally changed by this relationship that you have with him. And all of the, you know why we pray? Do you know why we read the word? It's not because we're trying to check off spiritual practices, because if you're just trying to flee from things and do the right things apart from relationship with Christ, that leads to legalism, and legalism is always lethal. Christianity isn't a rule-based, regulation-oriented relationship. It is a relationship with the living God who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he wants you to be thrilled by who he is. And the only way you do that is by developing your relationship with him through prayer and the word as you meditate upon it. And nothing motivates a man of God like a true understanding of who God is. I was reading Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. Because I got a buddy of mine and he's going through a real difficulty and I was thinking about this. It says this, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? My God is my helper. What is man going to do to me? Because who you're trusting in is going to be the defining feature of your life. There's a book called God's Undertaker. There's a science writer by the name of John Lennox. He's writing kind of on the scope and the limit of science. And he, and he writes this story. And I, once I read it, I was like, that is an awesome story. He says, imagine Aunt Matilda, okay? And he brings out this Aunt Matilda. And she, she makes this beautiful cake. And what, once she makes this beautiful cake, what we're going to do is we're going to take along some of the world's best scientists. And we are going to let them examine this cake. And so we're going to take our scientists, and we got our nutrition scientists, and they can tell us all about the number of calories and, and the cake's nutritional effect, and we really don't want to know about things like that when we're eating chocolate cake. At least I don't, right? But we'll, let's say we let them add it a little bit. Then we get our biochemists in there, and they will inform us of the structure, structure of the proteins and the fats, etc., in the cake. And then we can have our physicists, and they can analyze the cake in the terms of the fundamental particles. And then we can even bring some mathematicians, and they're going to talk about a set of eloquent equations of how these particles relate to one another. And, you know, that's what science can do. It can really drill down on what you're seeing, what we've got. It's fascinating. But there is one question that all these world-renowned scientists can't answer, and that is this question. Why did Aunt Matilda make that cake? Why is she grinning? (laughs) Let me tell you, there's only one person that can answer that question. That's Aunt Matilda. You can research that cake all you want. You tear it apart. But until you know from her why she made the cake, 
it's going to be a big puzzle. It's no slight to the sciences. They were, they were never designed to be able to answer the question why, but they're very good at answering the question what or how. Let me tell you, that's true with God. We can learn a lot about the human body and a lot about life, but unless God tells us why we're here and what this earth and this universe is all about, we're not going to know. And guess what? He has revealed it in his word. You know why we're here? We are here for him. We are here to know him, to exalt him, to experience relationship with him. The one true living God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the awesome one, we have been made for him. And so friends, I just want to ask you, what's going to define your life? Do not blow up your life. Flee from sin, fight the good fight, focus on Christ. And if you're like, Grant, why didn't you tell me this a year ago? Because I've already blown up my life. I've already made some devastating mistakes. I want to give you the good news. You do not need to be defined by your failures. You can be defined by Christ. And that is the gospel. He has paid for your sins. He wants to redeem your life. And he wants your identity to be fixed and focused on him. And who you're trusting in is going to make all the difference in your life. You see, when we are compelled that we are designed for God, the Son, His Son, defines our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. You've laid it out in such profound ways that our life will be defined by what we flee from, what we aspire to, and who we are trusting in. And so, Father, if there is someone here who has never placed their faith and trust in your Son, but they do so right now and say, God, I, I turn from my sin and I turn to you, the all-powerful one. I want you to be the defining feature of my life as I'm united with your Son by faith. And, Father, for all of us, may we take seriously you and your call upon our lives and may our lives be defined by the greatness of your presence in our lives. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.